This episode of The Outside Podcast is sponsored by Hydroflask, maker of beautifully designed insulated bottles, cups, coolers, and a range of gear for your outdoor kitchen. Hydroflask is also a company that believes every adventure starts with two simple words. Let's go. No matter how many times I go riding, I always get so excited. It's like always something new. It's just awesome. This is professional mountain biker and Hydroflask ambassador, Elliot Jackson. And I'm going to show you how we go trail riding. Like a lot of riders, Elliot enjoys his morning coffee, which he always takes in a Hydroflask 12-ounce vacuum-insulated mug. The first step when we wake up is we need coffee. That's like step one, probably step two, and step three, maybe step four, and then like down the line there's some like riding going on. Once he's adequately caffeinated, Elliot makes sure he has the right gear for his day. You don't have to have expensive stuff. It's really about making sure you're safe so you can go out and have fun. So the first thing is bibs. You need to make sure that you can be comfortable the whole time you're riding. So they have this pad at the bottom. I love wearing long sleeve jerseys and then our knee pads. I wear gloves, socks. I don't know if any of you have ever worn socks, but they're good. We're always gonna be wearing a helmet. Finally, Elliot fills up the bladder of his Hydroflask Downshift Hydration Hip Pack. This is our bladder for our hip pack, and you can just like take quick swigs. Hydroflask wants you to get out there and enjoy yourself, just like Elliot, which is why the Downshift, like all their insulated mugs and hydration packs, is designed to keep your beverages at the temperatures you like them. I like to have a lot of water. <laughs> Shop for yourself or for the outdoor lovers on your holiday list this season at hydroflask.com. And we are off. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. When we head into the wild, we tend to worry about and prepare for things like broken legs and lots of bleeding, which makes sense because injuries are serious when you're in the middle of nowhere and can't call for help. But there are other kinds of accidents in the backcountry that can be just as serious, those that cause someone to break down mentally. Dr. Kate Betcher is a clinical psychologist from Sydney, Australia, and she started to notice in her own travels that almost nobody knew how to respond to these types of crises, including experienced guides and even first responders. Now, Kate is on a mission to change that. For this episode in our Forces of Good series, she spoke with outside contributor Stephanie Joyce about why she's become an outspoken advocate for teaching psychological first aid. Back in my teens and early 20s, I took a lot of wilderness medicine courses. I was a guide back then, and at various points I had certifications as a wilderness first responder, wilderness EMT, outdoor emergency care technician. You get the point. I probably splinted a hundred not actually broken legs and stabilized more than one fake patient with a tree limb sticking out of their eye. But if any of my instructors dedicated time to explaining what I should do to help someone experiencing severe mental distress, I certainly don't remember it. Kate had her first inkling that maybe there was a need for more psychological first aid training on a climbing trip to Mont Blanc in 2011. She signed up expecting it to be challenging, both physically and mentally. 
She'd been on a handful of mountaineering trips before, but she wasn't super confident in the mountains. Mont Blanc is typically known as a beginner's mountain. It's not technical, but it has altitude and it has some skills, but there's there's no real rock climbing associated with it. It's more just a really tough, long, hard slog to a beautiful place with a fair bit of risk involved. I'd really wanted to climb it because... It seemed accessible for somewhat of my skill level at that stage and it felt like it was it, it felt like it would be meaningful to stand there, to watch the sunset, to experience the conditions. Kate didn't know enough to climb the mountain on her own, so she joined a guided trip. It was her, a guide, and one other climber. And so you show up in France and you've never met your partner before, the person who you're gonna climb with. Correct. I'd never met him. He was a lovely man, a fair bit older than I am, uh, or than I was at that that, that stage, um, and we were of a similar skills experience. So we did some acclimatisation together. We did some skills development together. We did some training together. So we knew each other reasonably well for almost strangers who were climbing together, and we got along well, which was really nice. We had a French guide who had exceptional skill, very poor communication, Not so much because he was a poor communicator, but rather he wasn't great with English. He was far more comfortable in French. Mm -hmm. He could give basic instructions and and that was – but he couldn't really have a chat or sit down and have a, you know, a friendly conversation that went beyond where you come from, what's your experience and what do you want to do and are you okay and that sort of thing. In the moment, it didn't really seem like a problem that her guide had limited communication skills. After all, his job was to get them up the mountain – not to be a good conversationalist. So we went up into some of the glaciers. We practiced as much as we could practice, acclimatized for a few days, and then we went for the trip to the summit, which meant one overnight, one long day and a a night up in a hut and then waking up very early and then pushing to the summit the next morning and trying to be there for sunrise. Now, it all went well. It was all going it was all going to plan. We were plodding along. We crested a ridge. And on the other side of that ridge, we had to we what was in front of us was a rock couloir. And that basically is it's a really dangerous area where there's a lot of rockfall and typically that's where people get quite injured if they're crossing it and the rockfall comes down. Now, we had to cross at a certain time because I think the rockfall became worse as it became hotter so as we stood up and stood on the crest of the hill I looked over and on the other side of the cooler which might only have been I know in my head I want to say it's 100 meters there was a group who had just crossed as we sort of stood there and as you are when you're up the mountains and you're just sort of looking around at everything and taking things in and paying attention but also in in your own little world There was a group of three, and I saw one of the men fall. When he fell, he just suddenly fell down, and his body was really... It was just a normal human body falling. And then suddenly, then it bounced, and then he ragdolled. So it was literally looking like a ragdoll as he then hit further rocks and down and down, and we watched his his gear in his uh, pack fell out and tumbled, and he kept going down and down until he came to rest in a heap and it took a moment to even realize what we'd just seen and what we'd just seen was him die 
Kate's still not sure exactly what happened. Whether the guy fell because he was hit by a rock and knocked unconscious, or if he fainted and collapsed. But he was definitely dead, and Kate had no idea what to do. Her guide, on the other hand, was all business. He immediately got out his satellite phone and called Mountain Rescue. A helicopter came and took the man away. Then Kate remembers her guide turning and saying, come on, before continuing up the mountain. We, we crossed the Kua, and the group was still in shock. And our guide said, no, keep going, keep going. It's worse if you stop and stay with them. So I listened to him, and we kept going. I was sort of just trying to work out what on earth had I'd just seen and what on earth had just happened. My climbing partner froze. The only way that he would walk is if he was sort of pushed and jollied along or or rather pulled from the guide and pushed from behind as well. And so he was he was absolutely not there and it it became worse. It became more evident that it wasn't just, you know, 5 minutes of being in shock. It was something that was going to stay with him and he was going to become more distressed rather than less distressed. Eventually we got to the hut that night and we'd all obviously been in our own little worlds for the last few hours since that happened and he just it fell apart. He started shaking. He couldn't articulate anything and then, in, then, then he started sobbing as well. And it was really difficult. I had assumed that the guide... The guys would have a protocol for something like this or the guide would step in and and calm him down or uh, talk him through because obviously this, it it felt like this was something that the guide had had seen previously if he was so accustomed to, you know, the planning and what to do around it. But he didn't. He looked at him and said, Kate's a psychologist, talk to her. And I I nearly... (laughs) I nearly whacked the guy, <laughs> um, partly because I thought, hey, you know what? I saw it too, and I'm not, I'm not at work on this trip. And then I pulled my head in a bit, uh, and I did, and I just sat with him and helped calm him down. What did you actually do to calm him down? I sat with him. Human touch is really powerful. It's, it's our most primal form of comfort. So if you just have your hand on their shoulder or something on someone's shoulder, you just need... A, a human presence and touch really helps. Then I just let him. I, I I just let him cry and sob. I got him water and I just sat there with him and let him feel things. I didn't really say anything. Um, I just let him have feel the emotion. And then once the emotion had burned itself out, that's when I started to try and gently, not talk to him, but reassure him that he was safe, that it was okay, that we're safe that we, you know, decisions don't need to be made about anything, that it was terrible, that how he was feeling was completely human and completely um, natural in, in that sort of thing. So really very little. In ter- and in terms of kind of what I've learnt now over the course of my career is the best thing that you can do is try and help someone calm physically. I mean, with anybody, when, when there's such high levels of emotion, the cognitive brain can't take anything in. So all I could do was actually was just sit there and be with him and, you know, put my arm around him. And once the raw emotion had settled, then he just, they started trying to think about whether or not he should go up the mountain because it what he had seen brought home the reality of what the mountains can do and also just, I think, made it, it, it well, it terrified him.
Kate's climbing partner wasn't physically injured. But of course, mental injury can be just as debilitating. So she wasn't at all surprised when he decided he wouldn't summit with them the next day. But she was surprised that she was the one helping walk him through that decision. And this whole experience, at at no stage did my guide ask me if I was okay. He asked me if I wanted to continue, but he never really asked if I was okay. And he never really followed up with my climbing partner. And I remember thinking not so much negatively about him, but just that, you know, and I, I, I understand that I have a different you know, that I come from a, 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 at that stage, and I was a psychologist then as well. So my initial response would be to step step in and see if somebody's okay and, and help calm them down and whatnot. But I think that's more of a human response, actually, not even just a psychologist response, but actually just a human response. And I saw that, that it wasn't there. And I don't know whether it wasn't there because the skills weren't there and often with anything to do with mental health or strong emotion, people become fearful around it. They think it might get worse or they think they might make it worse or that they don't know the right thing to say or that there could be further problems that result. But what I really noticed from that whole trip was just a complete absence, (laughs) an an absence of uh, the empathy for the group who'd lost a climber, you know, the absence of skills in knowing what to do and how to comfort and calm down my climbing partner and then no follow-up either. So it was really when I, when I first noticed that there was a gap, that there was something that would be so easy to do and so easy to teach and so powerful for the recipients, for the people on the other end of it. After the break, Kate takes her realisation and decides to do something about it. At the top of the episode, professional mountain biker Elliot Jackson told us how he gets ready for the trail, starting with coffee in his Hydroflask 12-ounce vacuum-insulated mug. After arriving at the trailhead, he puts his safety plan into action. I can't stress enough that I always want to text people when I get to the trails to just to let people know where I'm at. It's really important just to make sure you, know, you don't get lost or stuck or if you do crash, uh, that somebody knows where you're at. Safety is key. A big part of safety is proper trail etiquette. You really want to make sure when you're checking out lines that you're looking up the trail or you have somebody scouting for you and letting people know that somebody is there. To have the most fun out there, says Elliot, you got to pick the right lines to ride. For the beginner, I'm really trying to find the smoothest lines possible. Tires aren't sliding and I can let off the brakes, cruise on down. This intermediate one, I'm going to hop over this rock, maybe take a little bit more speed, find a couple little hops, let my bike work. Here's the advance. We're going to hop, float, (laughs) and just have fun with it. Hydroflask has partnered with Elliot and other inspiring outdoor professionals on a new video series called How We Go that has them sharing tips to help people of all skill levels get more out of their favorite outdoor activities. I love being outside because it gives me a sense of freedom and I feel like the bike was a gateway into the outdoors. I wasn't ever like a camper or anything like that and the bike let me experience things that I wouldn't have otherwise. To watch episodes of How We Go on everything from camp cooking and yoga to fly fishing and bouldering, follow Hydroflask on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. I'm Elliot Jackson, and this is How I Go.
Hey everyone, before we get back to our story, I want to let you know that from now through the end of 2021, we are running our best deals yet on Outside Plus memberships. We've also made some big additions. Beyond having exclusive access to content across our digital network and print subscriptions to Outside Magazine and any one of our sister publications, you'll receive a $50 credit at the Outside Shop to use on gear from top brands, access to 600 hours of members-only films and television series, subscriptions to navigation apps, Gaia GPS and Trail Forks, and unlimited access to masterclasses in top Topics ranging from fitness training to backcountry cooking. Join now or purchase membership as a gift for someone else at OutsideOnline.com slash pod plus. The accident on Mont Blanc got Kate thinking about what people need to know in order to respond to someone in psychological distress. To her, it all seemed pretty basic. But in the years afterwards, in a lot of different situations, she saw people struggling to figure out what to do for those in crisis. In 2017, I was working with a humanitarian organization and we deployed to Bangladesh immediately post Myanmar genocide, where the Rohingyas had then fled to Bangladesh. And we we worked as first responders. Uh, So it was a team of nurses, paramedics. I was the only psychologist, but I was relatively comfortable with remote environments and first aid training and that sort of thing. And they also they needed women because of the nature of the particular genocide and the fear that many of the refugees had about men. But what we did over in Bangladesh was a combination of of physical first aid and first response work, but also the requirement for a whole lot of psychological support and not so much mental health first aid about anxiety and depression and things like that, but acute responses to trauma and shock. And again, I had a moment over there where what I saw was there was there was some provision of medical care, but actually what the refugees needed or what they benefited the most from was connection. What we found they responded really well to was the perception of being seen. So us taking the time to sit with them. Like many amazing paramedics and first responders, you know, the focus is on the physical first aid. They don't necessarily have the time or the space in their normal lives to focus on the emotions. Whereas for me, I mean, that's, that's my bread and butter, so that's what I do. So I could, see, I could see what some of the refugees needed and I could give that. And I taught my team what to do with that because they were a little bit affronted when and occasionally, you know, if a refugee tried to hug them or something and, and, and they, you know, didn't really know how to respond. That's where I first sort of started again thinking, wow, you know, there are some really basic skills here. Really simple behavioural things are very important. When Kate got home, she signed up for a wilderness first aid class with one of the paramedics who had been in Bangladesh, a man named Nathan. Kate had taken plenty of first aid classes before, but never a wilderness one. And on the first day of class, she was excited to see that the curriculum included a section on critical incident response. In other words, responding to someone experiencing psychological distress. They'd included a module uh, which was taken from Ambulance Victoria, and it used a, a model of critical incident response that was appropriate for an urban ambulance station. 
It was mm. absolutely not suited remotely for anything to do with the outdoors and remote environments and not having resources around and not having immediate referral options. And it was the only organisation, the only course in the country that included, in Wilderness First Aid, that included anything to do with mental health or psychology. And I thought that was fantastic. And then I was <laughs> equally devastated when I heard what they were teaching and, you know, the model itself and, and that it didn't actually fit The model suggested things like educating people about crisis resources and encouraging them to practice self-care. In other words, it wasn't particularly relevant for someone dealing with a crisis in the backcountry. So after the class was over, Kate approached Nathan and shared her concerns. She asked if he would be open to her developing a more wilderness-specific module. And he said, all right, Kate, all right, but... Here are the boundaries. It has to be short. It has to be an acronym. It can't be. It can't be remotely. It can't feel like a psychologist is teaching it. So he he basically <laughs> reined me in, and it took about six months for us to develop it. And you know, I mapped on a whole bunch of uh, different critical incident response uh, models in it, and we looked at. Um, assessment side of things. We looked at mental health first aid, psychological first aid. We looked at risk assessments in outdoor context and all sorts of things like that and, and then just created a model that <laughs> that I was happy with. But just as importantly, that Nathan, <laughs> a very strong-willed, opinionated paramedic, was happy with. <laughs> and that's something that was really clear, really accessible, didn't have any jargon in it whatsoever. <laughs> and could be remembered quite quickly and quite easily as well. Kate's model consists of a series of steps to help someone feel safe after a traumatic event and to help responders decide if the person is able to continue on or needs to go home. True to her promise to Nathan, the steps have an acronym. ACE. A-C-C-E. Assess, communicate, calm, and evaluate to evacuate. So when you're in assessing an, an individual who's in distress, three really simple questions are what happened? So is the person's behaviour consistent with the event? You know, and the scale goes from green to red. So are they aware and coherent and insightful about what happened? And red is they've got poor situational awareness. They can't remember what happened. Question number two is how does the patient appear to be feeling? And again, you know, calm, measured, composed, uh, irritable, impatient, anxious or upset, um, out of control, frozen, angry, agitated. So quite, you know, quite noticeable characteristics. And then the third question when you're assessing a patient is, how do you as a responder rate the patient's level of distress? So again, is it appropriate for the situation? Can the stress be regulated? So after, are they responding to when you, you've calmed them down or do they still stay really elevated? And then at the other end of the scale, the, the red scale of that last, that final question is, you know, their distress is really high and they're unable to function. They can't perform normal tasks. So if you get them to pack up a tent or if you get them to coil a rope or, um, you know, anything like that, they just they can't focus on it and mm-hmm. just don't do it, really. Yeah, that that thing about, you know, just specific tasks, that, that really resonates with me. Like, just that idea that when, yeah, you're in a state of emotional distress, like you can't focus on the specific tasks. And that's also a good indicator that maybe somebody is not ready to be making decisions. And often in that case, all you have to do, all they have to do is emotionally and physiologically wind down a little bit, focus on slowing the body 
which then helps slow the brain because when you slow the brain, you can make better decisions, right? It's when your brain is racing. When it Mm -hmm. races, it typically goes into worst-case scenario. And when it goes into worst-case scenario and your body responds to this thought of imminent disaster or catastrophe and then your when your body starts to respond to that so it starts to shake and your heart rate goes up and everything and all that does is is increase the speed of your brain even more so that that cycle just continues and continues until your mind and your body are kind of in chaos so slowing a person down and getting them out of their head is the best thing that you can do yeah get the brain focused on concrete tasks in the world not yeah on the absolutely what-ifs. Exactly. So it might be you're at a you're at a climbing crag and there's a big fall. Um, the climber is actually okay, but the belayer is just in shock as a result because they feel that they've lost somebody. Uh, they feel like they've let them down. Um, okay, so what do you do? You're making sure that the climber is okay, obviously physically. Um, and what do you do with the belayer? You go through and are they frozen? Are they angry? Are they making sense? Are they not? And this person might be making sense but just um, subdued or um, suddenly burst into tears but, you know, manageable. They respond really well to your reassurance. They respond really well to you sitting with them and just taking some time with them and calming them down. Um, They are after, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, they're okay. They're happy to keep going. Um, You've given them a couple of tarts. You've basically, you've made them coil the rope and they did that fine. You've also just asked them if they, if they want to keep going, but maybe you've had them belay on top rope or or you've they're happy to belay with somebody you know to be a, a second belayer or something so in that situation that person can stay they're fine they just and they've calmed down really effectively they just had that those few emotional moments at the beginning and they were completely normal and and you know the, the and natural those emotions and that sort of that that fear and that shock um but they were able to to, mm-hmm. to come back yeah i mean it's so interesting i was thinking about all of the you know wilderness first responder and wilderness first aid classes that i've taken and in almost all of those scenarios i feel like you know when we would run through those in class there was always like an underlying physical condition that explained the emotional distress. You know, they had actually hit their head or they were internally bleeding. And so it's just really interesting to hear you walk through those scenarios and be like, no, sometimes people are like just actually in distress and you also need to know how to deal with that. Like actually they're just emotionally in distress. Yeah, they're just they're just they're just being human, and it's funny because in that um, in the wilderness first aid course, it, like, as the introduction to the module, what we usually open with is something like how many in this people in this class have had to deal with a broken leg while they've been out in the wilderness. How many people have had to deal with a heart attack of somebody in their group on that area? And in the group, if if there's you know ten or twenty people, you might you might get one or two who say, "Yep, I've dealt with." I've dealt with a fractured femur or I had to do, you know, a pelvic bind or something. But there's, there's very few. But then you say, okay, now put your hand up if you've ever dealt with somebody in high levels of distress. And almost mm-hmm. everybody at some point will put up their hand. They, they either, they've either experienced somebody in their group or they've felt it themselves or they've, you know, they know somebody who's fallen apart during a mm-hmm. particular experience or during a particular trip. And so it's a really powerful way to say, okay, cool, this is useful because while it's not the sexy physical stuff that that, that has a start and an end, it's probably Mm -hmm. more common. Do you feel like this is something that people 
more broadly are are starting to talk about and to say like, hey, you know, this is kind of missing. We need to we need to have that psychological assessment checklist. I suppose I'm a little bit of a special case because, you know, I have conversations like this all the time to everyone who listens and everyone who doesn't <laughs> listen as well. And so and you know, my world is 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 very much this. So I don't hear the silences necessarily. But what I have noticed when we decided to put this together and I did a big literature review and I thought, do you know what? Let me actually see. You know, it's not my experiences aren't enough to say this. there isn't stuff like this out there. So I looked around and I looked around and there really wasn't anything. There was a couple of bits and pieces in the US but not really not really anything that had been modified and adapted specifically for this sort of thing. So since then it's – the conversation has definitely become louder and it's becoming more common. You know, it's – they're just, they're just additional skills. You know, that, that's all it is. That It's – I am biased, obviously, because I'm a psychologist, but, you know, human skills, emotional skills, they don't need to operate under a dark shadow. There's just another skill set that is going to make you a safer, healthier, more empowered person if you have them and if you tap into them. So that gives me that gives me great comfort, actually. Yeah. When you actually articulate these techniques that you can use, I think they're things that some people just intuit and just do, you know? Um, yeah. Like, they wouldn't hesitate in a situation to to do those things. But I think for the rest of us, it's super helpful just to have it said out loud. And that's that's what most people, when they come out of it, they're just like, oh, I do. And we, we also say that. We're like, this, none of this, once you go through this, you, you do most of it all the time anyway. So so it's okay. So this is how you can make the decision and, and just have more confidence in making the decision rather than naturally doing it and then thinking, oh, shit, what have I done? Right. <laughs> is that right or is it wrong? It's right. <laughs> just have, have confidence that it's right. Yeah. Knowing that somebody who actually has training thinks that this is the right thing for you to do is always a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is always a good thing. That was outside contributor Stephanie Joyce speaking with Dr. Kate Betcher. You can find out more about Kate and her work at drkatebetcher.com. Betcher is spelled B-A-E-C-H-E-R. Stephanie produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. This episode was brought to you by Hydroflask, maker of beautifully designed insulated bottles, cups, and coolers, and a company that believes that every adventure starts with two simple words. Let's go. Shop Hydroflask products for yourself or the outdoor lovers on your holiday list this season at hydroflask.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at outsideonline.com slash outsideplus.